A happy Tuesday night, everybody, and welcome in this week in hockey. Alex Ferrario, along with the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, and Joe Vitale, back with you for two hours of Hockey Talk to kick off an entire week of Hockey Talk. As tomorrow night, it's the Boardwalk Hardwood Floors Behind the Bench Show. Chris Kerber has that as we profile Larry Plo, former Blues general manager. Then on Thursday and Friday night, it's more play glory of the Blues run to the Cup. It's Thursday night. It's the conclusion of the second round round the double overtime game winner in St. Louis the Pat Maroon goal against Ben Bishop we'll have that call for you at seven o'clock and we'll have our pregame show that we do is really a postgame show starting at six o'clock and then Friday we get into the San Jose Sharks series it's game number two the Blues first victory and of course don't forget we bring you every victory up until the Blues win the Stanley Cup and this series which I'm most excited for we get into the hand pass game so we'll have that one loss for you as well and again play Gloria Thursdays and Fridays starting at 6 o'clock with a pregame, 7 o'clock with the call from Chris Kerber and Joe Vitale. But, fellas, we start things off. Happy Cinco de Mayo to both of you. I'm sure we're hoping to get out of here as fast as possible. Is that how you say it? What, Cinco de Mayo? I mean, I know they don't celebrate it in Mexico either, so I don't know. You know. Yeah, they don't even celebrate. It's This is an American holiday. I think I've talked to Polo yeah. Asensio, the Cardinals broadcaster, about this. But I will say that I do enjoy myself some margaritas, and I do enjoy myself some chips and salsa on today. Really? Yeah, does that uh, does that does that make me a horrible person? I got no. I have I got about six things I could say, and I'm not sure that any of them are politically correct. But it's not it's not wrong. I just don't know if it's correct. You know, when I said that, Joe, I felt like I was being politically incorrect when I talked about it. But that's what people do. I know that's 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 the interesting part. Right. I hope that I hope that Chris Kerber doesn't feel about Cinco de Mayo how he feels about New Year's as far as holidays. Oh yeah, he gets he gets on me all the time yeah, about New, New Year's. Year. I'm definitely not a New. Well, no, I, I could. I guess, I guess here's the other thing. I, I don't I don't need a special day to grab a margarita. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right right well, now, every day well, is Cinco de Mayo for me. You know me. what? You know what day, Joe? That Kerbs does love to celebrate. Nope. It was yes- no, it nope. was yesterday. It's May 4th. May the 4th be with you, right? This, this, oh, this might surprise you guys. <laughs> Actually, this would surprise you guys. Okay, I'm, I, I, I'm an unabashed fan of, of the Star Wars. Nerd. Uh, okay, well, whatever. Uh, yeah, you <laughs> call me a nerd. Nerd, that's that's funny. That's funny. Um, they, I, I'm an unabashed fan of, of, of the Star Wars movies and the trilogies, just like millions and millions and millions of this billion-dollar franchise uh, there, Alex. Uh, the, the, I, I get it. Yeah. I yeah, get it. I'm not sure you'll have an idea that could come even close to uh, making one, um, what, point oh one of what this thing made? My Curbs versus Joey not. idea later on in the yeah. show tonight so, is close. I guess, I guess the point is, though, but I do draw the line. Like, like being a fan of this is, is very different than than – the people that dress up and like go to events as grown adults dressed up as it kind of playing it out like it is real life that 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 to me is is different now that's not just for stars that pretty much to me is just about anything right that's where you draw the line i think i think that's a very comfortable place to draw the line uh, with with cinco de mayo though i to me uh, i have no um i guess mexican blood in my system is that the proper way to say it but i'll tell you one thing I love me a good margarita, Alex, and I love celebrating. That's a good thing. That's a good God. thing about these holidays. Listen, I don't have any Irish in me. I love St. Patty's Day. You know what I mean? I, I, I can embrace the Irish culture. I can in, embrace the Mexico culture for today. But they and, and celebrate feel like- St. Patrick's Day. That's the difference here. They do? St. Patrick's Day the- exists in Ireland. It does? Yeah. Yes. I didn't know that. So, I, I, like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm fine with it. 
Hey, I got a couple hockey things for you guys. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe we should transition before yeah, we start getting yeah, more texts. Before I really get, a, get into <laughs> trouble here. Um, listen, um, so, so, so some updates here. First off, the National Hockey League is moving forward with some potential plans where they could hold the draft in June. You know, we'll, we'll talk about the impact of that here in, in just a little bit. But more importantly, you know, I, I think, Joe, with each passing day, as, as we start to find out more and more, maybe as the curve of the COVID-19 uh, passes and, and we get a little bit more into practical thinking, not fear and reactional thinking, I get more and more confident that, albeit it may be, you know, uh, you know a month and a half, two months off, uh, I, I get more and more confident that we will see hockey some point in time this summer. And, I, and, and unless something drastically impacts their ability to do it, they will do what they can to complete part of the season and get the playoffs in. I, I think they will too, Curbs. Uh, you know, if you think more and more about this, uh, I keep continuing to become optimistic, not just because it's in my nature, but because I think I'm seeing things out there uh, that are viable causes to look at, well, this 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 really could happen. I think people really desperately need it. But aside from that, it really always going to come down to one thing. Uh, it, will it, from a health standpoint, be okay? We're starting to see curves. We're starting to see plateaus. We're starting to see drops. We're really hoping that we don't see another spike. And that's why people are still trying to do what they need to do to be responsible. Um, the thing for me, uh, after reading more and more about this, uh, testing still is going to be huge for these players to get back to, this, to their cities. Now, they got to be careful with this. And, and this is an important part when you look at this whole thing. As much as you want to have testing available for players and staff and coaches, you have to make sure you kind of hold tight to the integrity of what's going on in the country and the world. You can't, you can't be robbing testing from places that maybe need it a little bit more. So if you can't get a ton of testing out there where everyone's covered, to me, that that's, in some ways, is a PR nightmare, number one. And number two, it's just not right. So that's that's one of the big keys moving forward for me is how much testing is going to be available. It's not just about getting the players testing because then you're going to have a whole other, um, I guess, area of, of problems. But if they can get that across and they can figure out uh, from a testing protocol from a neutral site protocol, from a player protocol, but what can and cannot happen, who and who and who cannot come on these trips. And if they can quarantine it and they can plan it right, and there are great people working on it right now, I'm like you, Curbs, I, I believe it will happen. That's interesting that, that you say that too, Joe, because I've seen a couple of athletes, one was in the NFL and one was in the NBA, state that you know they're not, they don't want to take away testing kits or the opportunity to be tested from people who have issues or have problems. Yeah. They want to I don't make think sure they're going to. No, I don't think so either. But it's you know if they try to say that that's a part of it, I've heard from numerous players already say that we don't want to take tests and kits away from people who need those guys. I know somebody who had it, has tested and has the antibodies for it, had every symptom in the book, had except except for maybe one, had traveled to a couple of hotspots area. They took x-rays of his lungs and said, no, you don't have it, and he's got the antibodies for it. You know, so I, I just, again, to me... To me, I don't think you can make – even our opinions, guys, are based on what in the hell do we really know is fact right now. Right. Because I just – I personally truly don't believe that you can really trust a lot of what you're hearing if it's coming sure. from anybody on a political side uh, uh, without any shred of doubt, uh, without spin. So the reason that I say that is because – I do think what will happen is it's going to end up being very practical to getting these leagues up and running again. Now, some other factors 
when we pull it directly back to to hockey in the St. Louis Blues. Joe, if and when they go to get things running, we just heard Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, just a couple of days ago say, well, we have to talk to the National Hockey League because players crossing the border, in his mind, are going to have to follow the same quarantine aspects. So let's just say the Kachuk boys living here in St. Louis, one goes back to Calgary, one goes back to Ottawa. If you're a Blues player, if you're Oscar Sundquist and you're coming back you know, over from Sweden, one of the questions to, to be asked yet that they have to work through, and this, this I bring this up because this is going to give fans an idea of just how detailed the thinking has to get here. When you come back in across the border, one, are you allowed across the border? Two, what's the procedure? Trudeau was saying in Canada he would fully expect them to have to go through the full quarantine process, which means you get locked in to your mm-hmm. house basically for two straight weeks. Yeah. So put yeah. that into the time frame process. There, there are many more tentacles to this than just beyond even how do you get them into a city and quarantine at that point in time. And that's why I think well, we're yeah. at the. Sorry, Joe. That's why I think we're no, at the point where you know they they we're we're hearing that we're getting closer to decisions of getting back into the swing of things and bringing players back over to try and start getting training camps going. But even Gary Bettman has said that these are just ideas. We're still in the starting position of all of these things. And I know they had a board of governors meeting yesterday that they said they don't even feel like they're close to be able to make a decision, but they are continuing the conversations. Well, and it's one reason why a lot of Blues players have hung tight because of this, um, I guess we'll, we'll call it a typical 14-day quarantine, if that's what they call it. And that's the amount of days. A lot of players didn't decide to leave for that reason because you go home and then when you come back, you have to be under that quarantine. Ryan O'Reilly, you know, he lives, I see him running around my kind of neighborhood all the time. Robert Bortuzzo, another Canadian, he's still around. He's still trying to stay in shape. We've talked to a lot of Blues players, Colt Braco and the same, the same example. They're staying here because of that reason. Now, the Blues players that are not here, uh, Curbs, it's an interesting question and it's something that as a team you got to get ahead of. Because if there will be a 14-day mandate quarantine process for these players, when there becomes a shred of hope that we are going to start a camp on this date, a team has to get ahead of it to me at least by two weeks. And you have to let your players know as soon as possible, you need to get here. When you get here, um, we're not starting, but we have to follow a, a typical protocol where you at least have to be in your club city for an amount of time quarantine, staying safe, and being ready for this start date. And, and guys, I it, it is a crazy thing. And I know I, someone just said something that kind of drew me to it. As much as you want to be safe, I think it was Curbs, you said something about kind of getting these sports up and running again. Can you imagine, uh, again, given all the safe uh, protocol and we're doing things the right way, but imagine what sport is the first one to get going. I mean, people are so desperate yeah. for anything right now if the nhl and, and, and again i say this with with all the the safety take t- 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 it all for it but if the nhl could get ahead of this and they could do it the right way and they can get on tv and they can start doing games before any other sport i mean it's it's basically a race to me because you will grab so many fans who so desperately just need a distraction from all this. You know what I'm trying to say? It would be an interesting aspect of it. We'll take a break here on This Week in Hockey. When we come back, I want to get a little bit more into the players' perspective of this as we've reached out and talked to a couple players over the last week, and we'll bring you some of those perspectives here in just a moment. We'll bring you back on This Week in Hockey on 101 ESPN. 
We bring you back into this weekend hockey on 101 ESPN. Glad to have you with us uh, here tonight. Chris Kerber, Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale. Coming up in our next segment, you're going to hear from former Blues general manager Larry Plo. And uh, it's a bit of a snippet. It's a segment of what we're going to air tomorrow night on our Boardwalk Hardwood Floors Behind the Bench show. I caught up with Larry, and we spend about 45 minutes to, to an hour with Larry talking about everything from not only his time as, as a young hockey player playing in the Olympics in, in Grenoble in 1968, but then a lot of time on the St. Louis Blues, obviously, and he talks openly about the Chris Pronger trade, the situation with Brett Hull, and how the team kind of built and then went back down to the bottom and started to rebuild again. So all that coming up tomorrow night, you're going to hear a segment of that with Larry Plo in our next segment here on This Week in Hockey. Joe, you and I have had a chance over the last week, uh, we, we've we've run into talk to a couple of the players at different times Uh, my general sense is that uh, they obviously they want to play let's get that out of the way they they want to play but it might surprise some people they're looking for information as much as any fan out there as much as any person with their own company is looking for information and it's not that anybody's being secretive it's just that once again a lot of the scenarios are just unknown it really is curved i talked to probably more players this past week than I've talked to in probably the last two months combined. And, you know, you hear the news and my brain starts to roll and, and I kind of keep in touch with some of these guys more regularly and definitely more regularly this past week, given some of the news that, Hey, we may, we may get something going here pretty soon. And my, my, my findings were a bit surprising in the sense that a lot of these guys still were as clueless as I was. You know, you always like to think that maybe there's some interior nucleus circle of communication happening that, you know, you're just not a part of uh, for obvious reasons. But, uh, you know, there is conversations happening about a certain plan. But uh, I was talking to a player the other day, and and he was basically just as lost as I was, uh, talking about how the group really hasn't been getting together for obvious reasons. Uh, They don't talk all that often uh, for obvious reasons because really there's not much to say. They have their little pockets of communication where a player will reach out three, four times or to do three or four players, rather. But aside from that, these players, uh, whether it be Oscar Sundquist or Alexander Steen or Alex Petrano, they are, they are doing what all of you are doing right now. They, they are in their homes. They are with their kids. They are struggling some days. They are having uh, moments of gratitude some days because of time that's been given with their families. Uh, and there's just days where it's just complete frustration and, and cluelessness because there is no conclusion and there is no insight of what's going to happen. So uh, to me, it, it really is about how, you know, that old, I hate that cliche because yes, we're all in the fight together, but we're all fighting a very different fight. They all, all are exactly where we are in certain ways about just not knowing what's going to be the next step. All right. We'll talk about uh, the, the draft situation and some of the, uh, I, my favorite word is kind of tentacles here because it, one decision has unintended consequences on two or three others, and we'll give the fans a little insight into how one decision impacts one, impacts another that maybe they haven't thought about. But before I do that, Joe, you were a player. You you were part of the PA. You're part of the processes. Uh, you, you were a player during that last lockout situation that the National Hockey League went through, and obviously this is very different because – a lockout, of course, was one where one side versus the other. This is one where everybody is in it together and you're just not allowed to be playing on either side. But having said that, we talked in that last segment about, okay, players having to cross borders to come back from another country if Trudeau puts it in, you know, where you've got to sit through quarantine. I do think at some point in time, too, that 
the players have to do some thinking for themselves here. And and when I say this, I'm not suggesting that they're not. But some of the players are going to have to look at that, follow some headlines, understand what's going on, saying, you know what, if Trudeau just said that and I'm going to be playing in Canada, I may just want to get back there sooner and deal with it now. Sure. You know, and and not potentially get caught. Now, again, I, I don't expect that to happen. But I just wonder how much onus the players put on themselves to make sure that beyond just being ready to play or staying in shape, that they're really staying on top of it to get ahead of those aspects of things without necessarily having to be told to do it. You play in curbs. These players are smart. And, and I know right. you know they and you know that. Um, I remember playing – uh, throughout lockouts or, you know, being out during lockouts, you know, one game to me that really came to mind, I was talking to Alexander Steen the other day and we were talking about the struggle of all this and what it looks like when we come back. And the closest thing I had to something like this was we were playing the Boston Bruins uh, seven years ago ish. And the night before that game in Boston was when that, uh, that, a marathon bomber was out on the loose right and they shut that city down and i remember being at that risk carlton where we stay curbs overlooking beacon hill and i just i it was like a, a scene from the movie i am legend there was nobody out and this is boston it was beautiful it was springtime and you couldn't see a soul the only thing you could see was a cop car every now and then they shut down that whole city they eventually found that guy it was, it was an amazing thing we stayed that night and we ended up playing the following day I, I get goosebumps thinking about the, the national anthem being on the blue line and facing the Boston Bruins and the building. That's about as close to what I feel like this is going to be about for these players. This is no longer will be just the game. And these players know this. And they're talking to Alexander Steen. He knows this. When this thing comes back, it's so much more. It's going to be so much more than just a hockey game because this is what people just are going to need right now. They know that. They're taking ownership of that. And to answer that question, I think players are being so responsible in the sense that they see that there's such a bigger thing happening right now. And it's really up to them. And it's going to be up to them moving forward. And it's a huge responsibility taken upon their shoulders. And and I really feel like these players are ready to own it moving forward. Well, one of the the awareness factors, Alex, that that you see is um, some players that normally would have no problem sitting down doing an interview with you are uncomfortable doing it right now because they don't want to come like it's a very respectful thing they don't want to come across as being cavalier towards what they know other people are dealing with and and it's one thing that these hockey players I think definitely understand yeah no I agree 100% on that and I think that's why it's been so rare that we've seen but a positive from that that we haven't seen players talking as much you are seeing more personality from players and we spoke about this uh, this yesterday on 101 ESPN that the personality right now coming from the NHL players that you're seeing on Skype videos or Zoom videos or the conversations that are put up on NHL that's going to benefit hockey when it does return because these players are realizing how big of a stage they're going to have when they do come back is what Joe just spoke of you know when they come back eyes are going to be focused because sports are back and I think that's the opportunity for Blues players to take advantage or not just Blues but the NHL players to take advantage and showcase that personality all right uh, Joe the National Hockey League is still looking at potentially eyeing the draft in June and to do that there's just going to have to be some agreements now they do have a little bit of 
I guess, precedent on how they can do these kind of things. Uh, obviously, coming out of the you know four oh five lockout, where that year, you know, they had everybody that was allowed to be in the draft or, or had a chance at the first overall pick, but you lost chances depending on whether you were in the playoffs year before things along those kind of lines. It's a little bit more than just coming up with the order. And for those that don't know the draft order, the teams that missed the playoffs. You're, you're drafting in the order of worst record to first, although there is a draft lottery now, so a team can mm-hmm. can jump up from from 10th to the first overall pick. And, and we have seen I mean, we saw Chicago yep. with a pretty meteoric jump. All right. But beyond that, then the rest of the order is basically how you finished with record and then playoff finishing. Um, going through that, though, there's more to the draft. And one of the draft aspects of this, Joe, is the conditional draft picks and how teams are going to deal with it. And what we mean by that for the fans out there is – you might have a conditional pick where you've made a trade for a player, but and you go, well, okay, a second-round pick becomes a first-round pick or a third-round pick becomes a second-round pick if you win two playoff rounds using that player. Things along those kind of lines are all still going to have to be worked out. And teams may have to go back. One of the things discussed right now is teams may have to go back and understand this scenario, try and renegotiate those conditional picks. Yeah, I mean, Kirby, it's going to be a crazy thing. Because how do you even navigate? This is beyond my pay grade. I just know one thing, uh, like 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 everything. You know, you mentioned when you talk about what teams make the playoffs if they go just go right into a playoff format. You know, there were some bubble teams that there were two points out of a playoff spot or wild card spot. They may just have to you know wipe their hands and say we're sorry. And, and at the end of that day, feelings were going to be hurt and it wasn't going to be fair. But that's just the reality of the situation. The draft, to me, Curbs, I know you feel the same way. It's no different. This, this is going to be no different. There's no right way where everyone's right. going to be happy. Then the conditional pick thing, that, that's going to be interesting. I, I don't believe – I was looking at this the other day and I got interrupted by something. I don't believe this really affects the Blues that much. And I'll have to go through my notes again just for the sense of I, I want to be accurate here. But I don't think the Blues really have any – conditional picks that are kind of lingering right now that that can really affect them at this point does right. that make sense yeah the the one that that at least jumped off the page initially would have been what do the blues do in the playoffs when it comes to marco scandela but since they already re-signed him right. that fired mm-hmm. the right. conditional pick anyway that montreal gets that second pick so Bingo. um so so that that is definitely there well it's it's going to be interesting it's going to be one of the things that you have to follow but i would challenge all the fans out there that as you think, okay, well, this makes sense. Try and think about it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, onions and ogres, right? Onions have layers. You know, parfaits have layers. Um, <laughs> onions, and, reference, nice. onions and ogres, like, you peel one back, and there's a whole bunch of other questions. Uh, that, cake? cake has layers. Yeah, it's an onion. Everybody <laughs> likes parfaits. Sorry. Yeah. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, uh, a little preview of tomorrow night's Boardwalk Hardwood Floor Behind the Bench Show as we bring you part of our conversation with Blues General, former Blues General Manager Larry Plow to give you an idea of uh, what's coming your way tomorrow night. Uh, that's coming up next here on This Week in Hockey on 101 ESPN. Welcome back in This Week in Hockey here on a Tuesday night. Alex Ferrario along with Voice of the Blues Chris Kerber and my co-host Joe Vitale as we are with you until 8 o'clock this evening. Plenty more hockey talk to get into this evening and a little bit extra as in the second hour, it's round five of Curbs versus Joey. And let me tell you, if you are out driving around and you need to go somewhere, make sure you're back in your car at the top of the hour for seven o'clock. Or if you're listening at home or on the app, make sure you tune in at seven o'clock because I'll just say this Curbs, Joey, warm up the pipes. 
plain and simple. So we'll get to that in the 7 o'clock hour. Also, we will talk a little bit about uh, moving forward for the Blues and, of course, this situation of returning to hockey. But now we want to bring you the interview that you're going to hear tomorrow night on 101 ESPN, the Boardwalk Hardwood Floors Behind the Bench show. Chris Kerber sits down with former general manager and still a part of the organization, Larry Plo, to talk about a lot of different aspects of his time with the St. Louis Blues. Here's a little snippet of what you'll hear tomorrow night on Behind the Bench. Larry, uh, even though you know your time as general manager is gone, you've stayed very much involved. Every draft, people still see you at the table, you know, running things. Uh, what did it mean for you to watch the St. Louis Blues and be a part of this team finally getting to the top of the mountaintop and winning the cup last year? It was really very satisfying. Um, you know, when when uh, Wendy and I left as the general manager, you know, I was working with JD, and Wendy had gotten sick, and about uh, there was about two years left before I was going to leave. And JD and I said, you know, we should bring somebody in to uh, to work with you, and then he takes over as a general manager. And, you know, we thought about that, and we said that's the right thing to do. And then we came, we came up with Doug Armstrong, and you know, to to stay with Doug. I mean, he asked me to stay on with him, and. Uh, uh, at that time, the amateur scouting, uh, Yamo had left to go to Finland at the end of that year when Doug took over. And, uh, you know, he had asked me, who do you think should run the uh, the amateur? And I felt Billy Armstrong was the guy at the time, you know. And um, he said, would you stay on and work with him for a year? And I said, yeah, I'll do it for a year because I'm going to move back to Boston at the end of the year. So I'd be here for this year. And... Uh, here it is, what, 10 years later, I'm still doing it part-time. Um, so it's really satisfying because, you know, 23 years of our life has been spent with the Blues and to see them win the way they won last year and the, the way the team played. I, I think if you're a general manager or coach, uh, when you look at teams and how they play, that's how you want your team to play. I mean, last year was just phenomenal, the way that team came together. You, you viewed the whole thing right up above. You had the best eyes on it. But, I mean, when you have a team that come together like they did last year, that doesn't always happen in sports. And to be part of that, uh, to see the fans uh, react to it, the parade was fantastic. Uh, How many years did they wait for that type of parade? They've had many parades with the the Cardinals and uh, the football team, but the Rams. But to have it happen after all those years, and to be part of that, it was really fun. Right. It was a lot of fun. Larry, were you one that the, the hockey ops flowed to that got derailed as we were trying to find a way to get through the crowd to the stage? Yeah. I, well, uh, I was I, I was actually, I was in uh, St. John's, New Brunswick the night before. And uh, um, I wasn't even going to get there for the parade. And Doug says, you got to come in. And uh, so I flew from St. John's on a Friday night and to Toronto and then into St. Louis that morning. And I, to try to get to the parade from the airport was is crazy. I had to walk the last two two miles. The crowd was trying to get through that. Oh, it, so was, it, was, it was crazy. It, it was fantastic, you know. And to see that happen and knowing that the, how loyal the fans are in that city and the media and how long everybody had waited for it to to watch it happen and be part of it was was special for both my wife and I. What was it like for you to be a part of uh, the USA team for the 1968 Olympics? Um, when you're 
I guess it's not a problem, but the, I'm sure everybody feels the same way. When you're that, like we were, I was 22. I was in the military at the time. I had been drafted in the uh, June of 67, and I was assigned for basic training at Fort Campbell, Kentucky in July and August. So I went and took my, my basic training. I couldn't get into the National Guard uh, because they were, they were so full, and I was drafted with the lottery. So after the two months of my basic training, uh, my phone rings, and it's Murray Williamson, who's the coach of the Olympic team. And he says to me, Larry, he says, uh, would you try out for the Olympic team? And I said, Murray, I'd love to try out, but uh, I'm in the Army. So he calls me back, and he says, let me, let me call you back. He called me back. He says, I've got you uh, a temporary duty for a weekend for a tryout. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, in those days, Curbs, the military loved to be part of the sporting world. They had the boxing and things, wrestling and things like that. And, and so they were very happy for me to go try out. So I went in, uh, on a tryout, and I made the team. And I said to Murray, and Murray Williams, who was a coach, I said, well, what do I do now? He said, don't worry, we'll get it taken care of. So they put me on uh, temporary duty for six months. So that was part of my military playing on the Olympics. And you're so young, to answer your question, you, you, it was great. But it's all when you think back, it's great. You, you, what you're going through at that time, you don't realize what it really is. And it was in Grenoble, France. Uh, uh, I think it was Nancy Green, I think it was, that was, uh, the, no, uh, no, Fleming, Peggy Fleming, I think yep, it was, Peggy in Fleming. Yep. 68, yeah, that won the goal for the for the skating, and so it was John Keeley, John Claude Keeley was the uh, the downhill skier, so it was it was really good, it was an experience you go through at a young age that uh, when you're this age now, you'd like to say, well, it'd be nice to go through it now and understand more about it. What happened on the military side after the six months was done? Do you really want to know? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's my military. I'm embarrassed to say it (laughs) because it shouldn't happen that way, but that's the way the world was in those days. Yeah. Um, I I, I went back to Boston uh, after the Olympics, uh, and that was in March sometime. And I called down to the personnel department where I was stationed before that, and uh, they said, we'll send you some orders out. So they sent me some uh, orders to report to Fort Dix, New Jersey. There was an Air Force base there, and there was a military, an Army base there just outside of uh, New York and New Jersey. So I drove down there. I went into the personnel department, and uh, I got into the personnel department. The guy looks at my orders, and he said, geez, he said, you only got about 12 or 13 months left in your duty. There's not much I can do with you now. And I, and I said to him, I said, uh, he says to me, he says, what do, you, what do you want to do? What do you think you can do? I said, well, look, at I passed the golf course on the way in. I said, I got experience working on the golf course. He says, you got it. I'll put you over there. So <laughs> they assigned me, to, assigned me for the, to the golf course to work on the greens for the, wow. for the, next, for the last uh, 13 or 14 months. But the, I got to finish the story on it. The... Um, uh, so when I got there, there was this one sergeant. He was my sergeant at the golf course, and he had to be like 350 pounds. So when I got there and I reported in the morning, every morning, and I was watching what was going on, and, uh, you know, everybody was working on the golf course. You had your certain duties and everything, and there was four guys that never went out 
and worked. So I've looked at what the hell they were doing. They were playing uh, double deck pinochle. So I never knew what double deck pinochle was, but I learned pretty quick. <laughs> so as soon as somebody dropped out of the double deck pinochle game, I jumped in. <laughs> so I was working on the golf course playing double deck pinochle. <laughs> All right, so we get we get you back. Uh, th- th- then when that's done, you get back to playing hockey. Um, when you well, decided- I played, I played for a year, you know the, that year. That year, my last year, um, I was with the Montreal Canadiens and owned by them, and uh, they uh, uh, called down to Philadelphia, and there was a team in the East Coast Hockey League, the New Jersey Devils, playing at Cherry Hill, and. Uh, the Canadians asked if I could play on that team if they if they would let me if the military would let me. So the military they weren't they didn't want anything to do with it at this time. The the, the personnel base where I was at Fort Dix, but my sergeant loved it. He loved hockey, so he said, "You go ahead and play, and uh, you know we'll, we'll just keep it between you and I." And I played sixty seven out of seventy two games and won Rookie of the Year. Never practiced once. Wow! So that was my final. That was my final year. I, I am always <laughs> amazed how life works out. I mean, things work in, in, in some ways. You know, if you end up with a sergeant that's not, you know, into hockey, or maybe that's a different story. But the oh, the way course. that works yeah. out. Um, can you take me through the decision to jump to the WHA? Yeah, I was. You know, I, I was with the I turned pro in '69 with Montreal, and I spent uh, three years there, and um, basically. I just wanted to play. You know, I was just a bench, a bench warmer with Montreal. And um, so we, we had finished the third year, and we had lost to the Rangers in the playoff. Um, Jimmy Roberts was on the team, and, and then my wife and Jimmy's wife were really good friends. And, um, so when the season ended, the WHA had started up. They had a team in Boston, New England Whalers, and they had contacted uh, my agent, and uh, said, would you be interested in playing? And, and I said, sure, I would. I just wanted to play. So on April 14th, I think it was, right around that date, 72, I called Sammy Pollock, who was running the Montreal Canadiens at the time, and I, I asked Mr. Pollock that day. I said, look, at I'm just a bench warmer here. I want to play. And um, I said, that, would you trade me? Because Vancouver and the Islanders, I think, were coming in at that time. And I knew they had interest in me, too. I said, if you trade me to one of those teams or someplace, I just want a chance to play. And it's not going to happen here. And I said, if you don't, I'm going to sign tomorrow morning. Uh, that the people, the ownership uh, from uh, from the uh, New England Whalers were flying up. And uh, we were going to have uh, signed the contract, my wife and I. And they were flying back to Boston for a uh, press conference. And he said, Larry, you know, let me tell you something. Uh, I'm not going to trade you. And there'll never be a WHA. And I said, Mr. Pollock, then I'm leaving tomorrow morning. And they flew up. We went back at a press conference in Cambridge, and the WHA started. I was the first publicly one to sign, publicly have a press conference. Now, there were some players that were signed ahead of me, but they didn't have a press conference. That was in April of 72. I think it was the 14th. Yeah, and you go on to so, win the win the Avco Cup, and uh, and then that that really kind of launched the rest of the playing and eventual coaching career, didn't it? Yes, yes, yep. We uh, we ended up winning the first year. Hey, I mean, to WHA for me, anyways, and not just in players, or I think the whole world of hockey changed then. 
Um, it became very public as far as what the ownership at the NHL was controlling at that time and the salaries and how they were running the league. And I think that WHA had a lot to do with where we're at now over time, you know. Once again, that's the Boardwalk Hardwood Floors Behind the Bench show will be in full tomorrow night here on 101 ESPN starting at 6 o'clock. We'll take a break. We'll come back. When we do, more hockey talk coming your way next on This Week in Hockey on your home for the Blues, 101 ESPN. All right, we wrap up our first hour of This Week in Hockey here on your home for St. Louis Blues Hockey 101 ESPN. Coming up next hour, we've got Curbs versus Joey as I try to redeem myself and get back into the race here. Um, I try and redeem myself, too. Yeah, well, we, we yeah, we were going to do the redeeming that matters. Um, <laughs> we're going to also we're gonna have an extended chat with Michael Russo. I, I think Michael is one of the top beat writers in the National Hockey League. He writes now for The Athletic. He started in Florida, ended up, uh, you know, then for a long time, was writing with uh, the Tribune there in Minnesota, and now he's with The Athletic. To give you an idea, when, when they fired their general manager, the reporting that he did was absolutely outstanding. You know, and then eventually the hiring of Bill Guerin. A very different kind of reporting, honestly, than what we saw with what happened with with McDonough and the, the president of the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, Mike went very much reporting. The, the other reporting out of Chicago is more kind of opinion-based. And so I really appreciate the job that Michael Russo did. And, uh, and we're going to talk to him, not only kind of get his divisional perspective, but also one of the cities being looked at, not only St. Louis as a pod city, is Minnesota. What is he hearing? How do we think that that could impact St. Louis? That's all coming up in uh, this hour or in the next hour as well. Is uh, And then we'll, we'll break down a little bit more of maybe some trades in, in Blues history and kind of the legacies of some different ownership groups in our final segment. Fellas, um, wait, can I can I get away from hockey for a second here? Please do. Sure. Can I do that? Um, kind of maybe a, a version of our 615 show? Uh, that's dangerous, but so, yes, let's do it. What do... Whose responsibility is it to take a dead person's profile off of Facebook? Mm, Bet you didn't see that one coming. Yikes. Mm. Okay, so no, so check this out. Wouldn't I, it be the family member? Well, yeah, but but I don't think a lot of people do. So so I put up a couple of posts yesterday, found some old pictures. I was uh um trying to find some pictures of my mom for uh, for for something that Frank Cusamano was is working on. And um he's kind of doing some Mother's Day stuff. So I'd gone through some old pictures and I found I found uh, some some pictures of Phil Roberto in our old Birmingham Bulls offices, right? So I will keep it a little bit hockey related, I guess. So I put him on Facebook, you know, Phil, Phil, and Mary saw him, and um, and then you know some people were responding to him. One of the guys that responded to is a former player that we had down there, Ole Jenstead, and who I guess lives out in British Columbia now. But then, in, in kind of clicking through there, you know, you see kind of mutual friends, and one of them is the former owner of the Birmingham Bulls who died a, a while back uh, well a while back so within within the last year Art Clarkson he 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 was my first you know boss working for a pro hockey team and it just got me wondering like like how many profiles are out there in social media from people that have passed and at some point in time like do you go oh does it get weird for you hmm i'll say this uh when my grandma and this isn't a profile or anything but when my grandma passed away her cell phone was still active and it still had her voicemail on it and my dad used to have it and would call it every once in a while just to hear her voice so 
a little different with a Facebook profile. But no, but it's a similar. Maybe maybe they're kept. They're, they're keeping it up there for that reason. I, I yeah. think that's at least what it is because some people, and I've seen you know friends from high school who have passed away. They they keep other friends' profiles up on Facebook to where they can send posts and put pictures and kind of keep the memory going. So I think that's why they at least last longer because it's not so much trying to take it down because it's weird. I guess it's to where they can keep the memory going and keep thoughts going. It's a good point. I think I think that's it. Rich Naren, who is a PR guy for the Arizona Coyotes, yep. he was always posting stuff of his kids. I mean, nonstop, all day long, almost to the point where I'm like, Rich, like, give it a rest. Like, we, we know your son uses his left foot kicking the soccer ball now. It's all great. Like, you know, some things maybe you don't need to share. And I talked to him about this, and I kind of joked around with him last, last time we were in Arizona Curbs this past year, and he said what you guys are talking about. He said it's not just about giving it to the people now or sharing it with our friends and family. They're keeping a log, and all these stories are saved in your profile. And, and what he's doing is he's creating this because this is something that, you know, we'll see how it goes, but ideally this will never go away. So it's memories that him and his wife always can refer back to. So it's no different than looking at your computer and just seeing your library of pictures and videos and just going through them. It's it's just a more condensed version of that. So uh, for that argument, I like to say that let those people keep their profiles as long as they want. They're not hurting anyone. Yep. Yeah, Rich Rich got a little frustrated with me a, a, a few years ago. So Rich Naren has been one of the longtime PR directors in the National Hockey League and one of, one of the best. Um, and, you know, we – the minor league team I worked for at one point was affiliated with him. That's how long he's been there. So um, so I've known him for, for a very long time along those lines. Well, the Coyotes are one of the teams, and, and teams I think have finally gotten away from this. But since the cap era, when they would sign a player, they'd put out the press release, terms of the deal not disclosed. Now what happens is when a team puts out the three terms of the deal not disclosed – you get a couple of the national guys that get a hold of the contract from the league, and within 10 minutes anyway, they're sending out the terms, right? And so I just replied on, you know, the, the Coyotes, and I forget what player they signed, Joe, um, but um, it might have been you. So uh, they, 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 I forget which player it was, but, you know, they put terms of deal not disclosed. And all I did was hit reply on social media, and I said, it's an outdated team policy in the salary cap era. Fans are tracking cap space. It's another engagement aspect with your fans. The team should put it out there. And he got a little frustrated with me, thought it was kind of classless to put that out there. And I replied to him, I said, like rich really like i mean i wasn't ripping the coyotes i'm ripping a a, a policy here because i do think in it, it and there are some teams every now and you'll still see a player that gets signed go terms of the deal not disclosed you know you know or teams put out a press release with uh and and a conditional second round pick for crying out loud explain the conditions you know fans mm-hmm. want to know this stuff and and so i i do i it's i pull it back to hockey there i guess but uh one what the player, what the, what the players make. You don't have to even put the terms, but at least put what the average annual value is because fans are tracking salary cap space, right? And then two, if there's a conditional pick involved in a trade, put what the conditions are in the press release because we're going to ask, find out, and tell people anyway. Right. Don't mm. you think? Curbs, mm. what, what part of your brain goes off when you see something like that and you decide, I'm going to say something? Because so many people, because you, you're not question. wrong. The octopus yeah, great question. Isn't that you're not called? wrong by any means. But so many people, including myself, would see that and, and think, oh, there, there's, they should be able to see the terms. And then I would just keep on going about my day. So my, I was always curious about people like you, and I'm grateful for people like you, because then I can be like me, that something mm-hmm. flicks in their brain and says, 
this isn't right, and I'm going to tell them it's not right. Well, okay, so it's not, no, it's not that this isn't right and I'm going to make a point that somebody's wrong. It, it is it not even close. That's not even a thought process. I think when I when I post on social media, and this actually causes me to unfollow people or hide them so you don't hurt their feelings or whatever, um, uh, can you can you create a discussion? Can you advance a discussion and make a point and then potentially have a discussion? That's that to me is is the real key is can you can you do that? So in this case, it's not saying, hey, you guys are wrong by doing this. It was I think that these policies are outdated and here's exactly why. And so, um, yeah, it's it's definitely not attack mode unless I mean, there are occasions where some people kind of deserve you to go a little junkyard dog on them. But, you know, uh, but but outside of that, for the most part, it's can you can you advance a thought process? And if you feel like you can advance a thought process. Then go, but now I'll give you a quick example. One I pulled back today, right? I saw a headline on the Post Dispatch uh, website, stltoday.com. And that headline said, as Missouri, Missouri opens businesses as COVID cases hit records levels. Well, I, I would, I'm pretty pissed off at that headline. The two are totally unrelated. They're unrelated. There's no way that opening Missouri yesterday caused a spike. In the numbers yesterday, right? Sure, it's impossible because sure. if you got if somehow you picked up COVID nineteen yesterday, you don't even know it today. <laughs> Four weeks, right? Ago, right? So when you combine those two headlines, it's it's completely misleading and wrong, you know. So while while both are fact combined together, wrong. And so then you feel like saying, "But I put it out there." And I said, "Oh hell, I don't feel like this fight because there's no way you can like you can't have a you could not have an intelligent discussion." You know, at that point. So I didn't put that one out. So that, that gives you an idea of my thought process. That gives you some good insight in your brain, Chris. Oh, yeah. I always appreciate go. that. All right. Hey, we got to take a break. And when we come back, we open up the next hour. Speaking of my brain, it's about to get taxed. Uh, see if Joe Vitale uh, can go ahead and uh, keep his run. I think he's won two in a row. See if he can make it three in a row when we come back. You're listening to This Week in Hockey, and it's on your home for St. Louis Blues Hockey 101 ESPN. Hour number two of This Week in Hockey. Welcome back, everybody, on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. I'm Alex Ferrario, along with the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber and Joe Vitale. I need, I guess, redemption at this point after my last two weeks. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just pitiful performance, I would like to say, and start. I've got to be honest with you. Like, last night, uh, as we're getting ready and just kind of thinking about the show, uh, Joey. No, I wasn't worried, but I thought it's almost more fun to wonder what Alex is going to bring to the table (laughs) than it will be to actually do what he brought to the table. Right, Joe? That's the game. The game is, (laughs) what did he come up with? The, The title of this segment should be, what is Alex thinking this week? That's And that's a dangerous thing. So, look, what we're talking about is Curbs versus Joey. It's the competition that we started five weeks ago on This Week in Hockey where I put the voice of the Blues, the play-by-play man, against the color man. Some friendly competition. The series is at 3-2 to two right now in favor of Joe Vitale. But the reason I say Hey-o. redemption... <laughs> yeah. The reason I say redemption is because the last two weeks have been pretty poor performance. The Disney one... No, no, I, no, 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 no. By whom? By me. Okay, thank well, you. Well, I could say you also, but... 
but I won't go there. But look, the Disney performance, the right idea was there. The wrestling and hockey nickname was not there. This one I'm very proud of, fellas. Okay, now, Joe, if Alex was vindictive, and I do think part of him probably could be vindictive, <laughs> I since am. prior to his current role as uh, blues host and you know and show host here on 101, he worked for his dad's termite company. He could go completely insect and make each one of us go 0 for 8, and then we tie. Oh, man. Great idea. If he goes, if he goes insect, this is going to be a clean and fast sweep for Joey V. <laughs> oh, you, oh, you, oh, okay. Very good. You're good with your entomology, huh? Un- <laughs> oh, buddy. Have you ever seen Wild Crafts, the kids' show, all about bugs? That's all I've been watching for two straight months. <laughs> all right. Well, that sounds like next week's. But, no, this one's going to be very entertaining for me. So, okay. it's going to be finish that lyric. Oh crap! So, mm, like it, and, and here's how this is gonna work. God, there's some I hate this. there's some stipulations in this bad boy. There's gonna be five rounds, two songs, one for each of you in each decade. We go 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. One point if you get it right, but you get an extra point if you sing the finished lyric portion. Are we on board Ooh, with good. this? So you just chant. We've already known how you've had oh, yeah. troubles keeping score. You're going to be oh, able no. to keep this up? Oh, I got you this got a down. grid for this? Oh, don't this? worry. It's three to two. Joey's okay, in so, the lead. So since Joe I, won the I last got a great week, voice. he goes first. Okay, so Joe, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play about five to ten seconds of the song, and then I'm going <clears> to <throat> stop it, and then you're going to take it from there. And again, you can either finish the lyric and just say it, or you can sing it and get two points. Good luck, Joe. Got it. You ready, buddy? Let's do it. All right, here is... Number one, it's from the 60s for Joe Vitale. Someday, when I'm awfully low. And the world is cold, I will feel the bug low just thinking of you. Chris Kerber, I'm winning. <laughs> you might have just won. When the world is cold. <laughs> I will feel a glow just Glow, that's what it was He got it you. Yeah. He almost <laughs> This is gonna be Good night This is gonna be, gonna be quick Fantastic so Joe gets, I have a great voice Joe gets two Not points bad. I'm actually impressed with it On Joe. that one Curbs, are you ready? Okay. Yep From the 60s Here we go All right, move on to Joe's. <laughs> not, even, not even a chance. No. How good are you You're in the just 60s? too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. <laughs> Give Joe my points, will you? you want his points for that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, so, round, round two. Round two, this is from You know the what, s- I'm just going to keep scoring this game. <laughs> round two. This-, <laughs> this is from the 70s. Joe, are you ready, buddy? Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Get closer, oh, get closer. Not my daddy day. Don't stop till they get enough. Can't stop till they get enough. Come on, give us the full stop. I don't know if he said the right words at the end of that. Yeah, he kind of did. I think close enough. Yeah. 
I'll give it to him. I said get closer. What What is finishing a lyric? Is it finishing to the punctuation, I, I, it's, technically? Well, if you watch the game well, I don't on think it's, it's got, probably got to be more to get the next two words right. But I'll give that one yeah, to you because I, I like your effort. It was, it was pretty yeah. darn close with that one. Yeah. All right, All right Curbs. All right, Joe, round three. Okay. <laughs> oh no no no! That's not, that's not how this works. Come on, these, Come on, these are number, these are All top right. five hits from the decade, so we should be knowledgeable. All right, here we go, Curbs. Very superstitious. The writing's on the wall. You just nice. said the lyrics that I just played. I don't, think, I don't think I just said no. I, 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 Here, I'll play it again. Play it again. <laughs> no, letters about the fall. Whoever the fall. Keep playing. I wasn't even close. <laughs> no, yeah, but keep nope. going. What, what's what's the next part? Oh yeah, wasn't even close. Okay, that is a lyric. It is a lyric. It's just the wrong. It's just yeah. It is. It is a lyric in the song, just not right then and there. Okay, Okay. Joe. So you got a commanding lead. Let's see if you can complete it. You ready? Okay. This is this is from the eighties. Here we go. Are we in the eighties now? All right. I was still in liquid form. I got this one. And the last stoned boat. Oh, gosh. I, I know the eye of the tiger part. I say that over and over a hundred million times. I don't know. Spread in the night. Oh, I actually still man. have this album on an LP, Alex. This is one of my yep. favorite songs. That Although would, that would I, I played this song in Philly last year when I ran to the steps in Philadelphia. Yep. Oh, and I bet you're the and only I, person in the history of Philly that has ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I got a chance here to at least climb back into the game. If you All sing right. this one, Curbs, okay. and you get it right, you're down by two. You ready? Okay. Yep. All right, here we go. From the 80s for Curbs. <laughs> Working for the men. She brings home her pay for love. Oh! <laughs> wow. Look at that. that was a good one. Did you hear the pipes on him, for Joe? Love. You like that? Pull that. <laughs> Can you name the album? Can you name the it. album? Oh yeah, no. slippery when wet. Okay, there you go. All Come right. on, I know my, right. I know my. Okay. okay, guys, I'm very proud of these next two. So. Uh, Okay, We're going to we start go. with Four Joe here. Two, at least I'm in the game, Joe. Are you ready, Joe? You're, you're back. You're back. From the you're 90s, charging. buddy. Here we go. Every time you see me, the hell is just so hype. I'm dope and I'm magic on the mic. And I'm magic on the mic. And I don't do the floor. And I can't touch it. Dude, I don't know. I don't know. ever stop doing this? Did you know this, Curbs? No. <laughs> no, I know the no song. Way. It's one of those you might be able to get it if you just stayed with the song. Well, and as I yeah. was doing this last night, I'm like, well, should I do the chorus? But the choruses were too easy, so I had to make it a little more difficult. Okay. All, All right. right. Ready for this, Curbs? Well, you stole this one right from the Rizzuto show, didn't you? Do they do finish the lyrics? I know they do the mumble one. Yeah, they do it with Patrico's dad all the time. Oh, I thought that was the mumble one. Yeah, no, all right. Well, this is okay. fantastic. It's okay. 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 Uh, stealing have, is a great form of flattery. You have three daughters. You should be able to get this oh, one. Great. It's from the 90s. Joe, this is just pure entertainment for us, buddy. Here we go. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> 
He's literally singing it for you. Uh, okay, it's 4-2 going into the fifth round. Oh, what a tune. Oh. Yeah, I know it's Britney Spears, but I don't know the rest of the words. This, this, this music video. That's when puberty got- hit for Alex. Alex, this was maybe a little before you. This was Kurt's right in clearly your way after you. Yeah. Um, this yeah, now music if you video. Some Debbie Gibson, we'd have been good. <laughs> this music video seems like it was that Job of the Hut Princess Leia poster moment oh, for a yeah. lot of teenagers. This was my teenager years. This was the moment when Britney Spears was in school in this music video. Did he just do that? I just learned from Kirby. Did he just do that? I just learned that Joe likes Jabba the Hutt. Did did Joe just reference Star Wars on May the 5th? As as a cultural moment? Listen, it's Cinco de Mayo. I'm feeling, I'm feeling festive, and I wanted to branch out. All right, let's see. If, let's, all right, let's go. So here's the deal, Joe. If you get this, Curbs doesn't have a chance. If you don't, Curbs can tie it. Let's do it. Ready? Nope. All right, here we go. This is from the 2000s for Joe Vitale. Telling your best friend, I think I think my butt getting big. Oh, it's getting hot in her. I think my butt getting big. Butt getting big. Yeah. Well done, Joe Cephas. Joe Vitale. The crowd goes wild. All right, so Joe pulls out the victory. Now, just for fun, we have two more because I had one tiebreaker and curbs. So let's see if curbs can get this one. I, I, uh, <laughs> you did the motion right. I know. <laughs> Moving my hips like yeah. I, and I was really hoping we got to the tiebreaker because I was going to do our infamous ding to see somebody say ding when they have the lyrics on this one. So here was the tiebreaker. Believe me, just watch. Don't believe me, just watch. Don't believe me, just watch. Don't believe me, just watch. Wait a minute. Put my cup. Put some liquor in it. Oh, man. I just totally destroyed first. Oh, yeah. Completely. Well played, Joe. All right. So, <laughs> Joe comes out on can top we, victorious. Can we, since since I, I got an idea. How about this? Whoever's winning in the series gets the name, the segment. Okay? So, from now on, yeah, this segment a good will be idea. called I'm with that. CBC versus MICDS. <laughs> or maybe like, um, let's, now it's time to go to the CBC, MICDS segment, and CBC is in the lead. Alex, you have to start it like okay. that. Okay, that's until fair. Until the day Curbs takes over. Yep, I think that's fair. CBC yep. in the lead over MICDS. Yep. Guys, did I redeem myself? Yeah, that was better. Much okay. better. Okay. Much better. We're gonna Much go to better, bu- we're gonna go to Bugs next week then with uh yes. with Joe Vitale and Chris Kerber. But that's tonight's CBC versus MICDS. Well done, Joe. CBC on top, mm-hmm. four to two. We'll Again, take a- he still didn't go to class. Listen, what's the Disney? Uh, when we come back, we'll take a it's quick break. CBC, you don't need to. We'll take a quick break, but as I uh, mop up the floor from getting my own butt whooped there, and when we come back, uh we're getting back into some hockey with Michael Russo, the great uh, beat writer for the Minnesota Wild. There's a lot to talk about he's got a great national perspective plus a minnesota wild perspective as well and we'll get into it with michael russo when we come back in a moment here on this week in hockey on 101 espn well we welcome you back to this week in hockey we continue on here in hour number two uh coming up a little bit more on 
uh, Larry Plo and just some other kind of, uh, I guess, uh, perspective when it comes to legacies. And we'll do that in the final segment here. But for the next uh, couple segments, we're going to talk it over with a guy that I consider to be uh, one of the best beat writers in the business. Michael Russo covers the Minnesota Wild for The Athletic. And, uh, folks, I'm going to give you a real quick idea. These, these are my words, not his. I want to make sure that's very clear. But I want you to go compare how things read on the reporting on what happened with with McDonough, the president of the Chicago Blackhawks, when he was let go, and then how it was reported on The Athletic with how uh, when the general manager change happened with the Minnesota Wild. And you're going to see exactly why I uh, I hold Mike in in this kind of regards. Uh, One of the top beat writers, just the facts, gets gets you great information, knows the stuff, and we're thrilled to get a couple minutes of his time here. Mike, thanks for joining us. Are you hanging in there up in Minnesota? Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it, Chris. Um, and thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's tough. It, it's as you guys know, I, we want to be covering hockey and being around this awesome sport, and it, it does feel like every day you're waking up. And even though there really has been plenty of plenty to write at the Athletic, it just feels like every day you're sort of working to invent a story um, without really the tangible excitement of what's coming next. You know, during the hockey season, I, you know, Jeremy Rutherford, my colleague in St. Louis, could tell you. I mean, during the hockey season. Um, you, you just you know that every single day you're telling the story of what you're watching in front of you and you're documenting a year and you don't realize how easy that routine actually is until you get into a situation like this where every day you're you're kind of waking up and have a list of story ideas that really take a lot of effort um, to put together. But but you know I just cannot wait for the sport to get back and for all of our lives to get back to to uh, a little bit more normalcy. Uh, Michael, has there been a story? Uh, obviously, given all this and no game, so you mentioned digging deep into stories, and we see it on social media all the time. And I think players' personalities are certainly starting to come out. Has there been one in particular that you've enjoyed uh, reading about, or maybe writing about over the last two months? You know, it, it has been. It's funny. I, I haven't written it yet, but I'm, or I haven't really uh, published it yet. But I'm working on a sort of a story on what uh, just kind of funny anecdotes that all these players are dealing with that they. Uh, normally deal with in off seasons that are they're suddenly dealing with now, and the the funny one is homeschooling their kids. And some of the an- some of the anecdotes are absolutely hysterical. Like Jared Spurgeon telling me, I don't want to give the story away. Up Jared Spurgeon telling me that his wife essentially put him in detention for three days because he missed like three days worth of assignments for his daughter. Uh, you know, De- Devin Dubnik telling me about how he got shot in the eye the other day by his son by one of those ner- Nerf guns that are not like the ones that we had as a kid. And, um, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed I did an oral history on the 2014 uh, Game 7 that the Wild played against the Colorado Avalanche and just kind of living that over again, one of the most exciting games I've ever covered in my career covering the NHL. Uh, that was, uh, you know, just really, really fun. And, and then lately I've been doing a lot of personality profiles on this kid, Kirill Kaprasov, that the Wild hoped to sign at some point here, their top prospect coming over from Russia. And just kind of, you know, even though I haven't gotten a chance to talk to him yet, just because, he, you know, he doesn't speak any English, uh, just kind of getting to know him through the eyes of people that played against him and coached against him and played with him and, and insiders and things like that. Those have been probably my, uh, my favorite, favorite stories. You know, Michael, my wife is a school teacher, so my favorite meme, hands down, that I've seen throughout all this, and and there's a ton of them that have been great. I get about four or five a day from Bobby Plager, but this one was my favorite. When it when it it, 
it, it, it was a meme that said, a lot of you are about to find out that it wasn't the teacher that was the blanket problem. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, that is the, I mean, it is funny. The anecdotes that uh, they tell about how much they appreciate their, their kids' teachers now, it's probably the best part. of It's going to be the best part of the story that I uh, still have to sit down and actually write. Uh, so, listen, give us your perspective just overall on what you're hearing and, and just kind of your overall sense and feel of direction that this may end up going for the National Hockey League. Well, I mean, it certainly seems like they're extremely motivated to ha- to somehow finish the season this summer. And even if that means without fans, even if that means uh, spending an absolute fortune to put these players up and feed the players in hub cities uh, to get very limited revenue just to essentially – make sure that they uh, don't have to pay back a lot of these TV stations uh, next year or at least limit the amount that they're going to have to do. Um, so that, that, is the, that is the thing that just seems to happen, which, you know, part of me as a, as a beat writer that I just said wants to cover hockey excites me. The other part of me is just it seems endless on all the challenges that that presents from quarantining these players to letting, you know, to frankly, from a selfish point of view, you know, or is Jeremy Rutherford and I and you, Chris, allowed to be in the building? I mean, you know, if, if it's true that these players are going to have to isolate, one would think that anybody around the team, the people that prepare the meals, the ushers, uh, the, the security people, uh, you know, and, and reporters are going to have to be put in some sort of isolation as well and get constantly tested. So I just I can't even imagine the laundry list of things that this is going to um, entail if it if it does happen. And it does certainly seem like they are motivated. Um, we should find out here in the next day or so uh, that that there could be an NHL draft in June despite, despite a lot of the uh, issues that that presents as well. And again, part of me as a beat writer is excited about that because it's actually something real to write about um, rather than, than sort of inventing things every day and doing top 10 lists and things like that. But uh, it certainly, um, it feels like this league is going to try to get back into business uh, and uh, we'll see how, uh, that also, if it presents a little bit of a, a problem or a byproduct that, that really hurts the start of next season. With covering the neutral sites, like you were mentioning, Michael, uh, obviously Chris and I are representing the St. Louis Blues. You representing the Minnesota Wild and covering them. Two, two cities that, uh, for, for better or for worse, have seemed to be, at least on that first tier or second tier at least, as far as mm-hmm. cities to be considered for this possible neutral site location for the Central Division, for example. Uh, in your mind, why would, why would St. Paul be a good city to have six, seven teams come to quarantine there and play games? I think one, one big reason is, uh, at least as of now, who knows two months from now, um, from a hotbed perspective per capita, Minnesota has been one of the smallest uh, outbreaks in the country in terms of COVID. They're, they've really done a really good job of, of really limiting the effect of this and and making sure that it's not nearly as bad as other uh, places and other markets in this league as well. Um, the other big thing is the amount of ice, the amount of rinks. Uh, you know, not only do you have XL Energy Center, which is an outstanding arena, but you have Tree Rink a couple blocks away from the rink where the where the Wild uh, have their practice facility. Um, not only can you have multiple locker rooms there and put teams up, but it also has tree orthopedics in the building. So if you are going to have seven teams or eight teams worth of players in this market, you're going to need to make sure that they are absolutely cared for from a medical standpoint. And so uh, just a relationship that the team has with TRIA and the fact that you can just, if somebody gets hurt in practice or hurt in a game, it's right there. I think that is uh, definitely beneficial. But the other thing is, is that, you know, if you were going to have to house seven teams worth of training camps, you can't really share practice facilities because you're, you're not going to have 
trainers moving in and out of locker rooms on an everyday basis. You're going to need, at least for the first couple weeks um, or three weeks, even the way they're talking, is probably seven different ranks to have these teams um, have training camp. And, and they have multiple uh, rinks in this area, not only Schwann Super Rink that has eight rinks there and a, a world-class fitness center in the Herb Brooks Center, but you have Bremer Ice Arena and Edina that, uh, honestly, there are two locker rooms there for the high school teams are better than some NHL locker rooms, uh, certainly better than the the visiting room at Enterprise Center, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so, um, um, you know, and, and again, uh, you know, St. Thomas Academy, uh, there's the uh, Ritter Arena where the women's, uh, the Gophers women's team play. There's just multiple ranks. So I think that's the big reason why the league is really working here, is looking here, is just the number of ice sheets here and the fact that right now COVID has not been as big a problem as it has been, especially, obviously, in the northeast of this country. Have you sensed from the league that they could play games in both St. Paul and Minneapolis, too? I think that they want to. You know, originally, that was the thought, is that, you know, you could put them in a market by, like, Minneapolis, and if there's no fans in the or Minneapolis-St. Paul, and there's no fans in there, it really doesn't matter um, what type of rink you play in, if they're, you know, you're playing in a 1,000-seat public rink or XL Energy Center. But the one thing, ta- talking to Gary Bettman a couple weeks ago for a story that I did and also just listening to him do other interviews as well, um, it seems that they are really um, intent on making sure that every game is played in an NHL-quality arena um, with that, that they don't have to sit there and, and uh, you know, build locker room space and uh, build you know, TV network outlets and things like that. Um, you know, make sure that that you know from a from a uh, video review standpoint that all that technology is already in place, and so I think that they feel like in a in an arena like that you could have, you're better off doing that. So I do think that if they ever chose Minnesota as a hub city, which is one of the top options, that most likely all the games we played at XL Energy Center. We're talking things over with Michael Russo. He covers the Minnesota Wild and the National Hockey League for The Athletic. If uh, you have not subscribed to The Athletic, you should. I don't know that there is a better sports site out there for written content. Uh, and, I give, geez, Mike, I'd almost like to say old-school content from the standpoint of you guys could actually write stories, too. Like, it's, it's almost like... A, it's like the sporting news of all of yesteryear with with game coverage. Yeah, no doubt. No no space constraints, no deadline constraints, no ads. Uh, we are all totally subscriber-based right now, which is one reason why we've been so healthy during this, um, this pandemic is, you know, a lot of newspapers that kind of made fun of us when we all started – for being, uh, you know, totally driven on on subscribers, the reality is we didn't have to we didn't have to depend on on ad revenue. And now all of a sudden, that's the big reason why a lot of these newspapers are struggling right now. Because obviously, in a pandemic with businesses um, shut down or or really struggling, they're not really advertising with these newspapers. So it really, you know, Jeremy Rutherford, our athletic St. Louis writer, and I uh, went through this together. We were like the fifth and sixth or sixth and seventh. Uh, hockey writers hired at an athletic uh, now that has about 50 hockey writers and 400 writers and 500 plus on staff. And uh, so we went through it together. And one big thing, I mean, he, he loved the St. Louis dispatch. I love the star tribune. Um, But I think at this stage, you know, both of our careers, which have been long ones, fortunately covering this awesome sport, I think that we're both starting to get burnt out from having to really write finite amount of stories and making sure that we, uh, you know, you know, got, got our game stories in this little tiny space where now we can let it breathe and really write until we feel like our story is written. So that's the best part. If you love long-form journalism, 
uh, you'll definitely love uh, The Athletic. Theathletic.com is where you go to subscribe to. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, Michael Stuna, stay with us. And uh, look, there is a fascinating aspect to this pause when it comes to coaches. And we'll explain when we come back with Michael Russo in a moment here on 101 ESPN. And once again, we bring you back into this week in hockey. Chris Kerber, Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you. And we're joined by Michael Russo here on a Tuesday evening in St. Louis. He covers the Minnesota Wild for The Athletic, which, again, as we talked about in the last segment, you can subscribe at theathletic.com. And, Michael, the Minnesota Wild are like several other teams, and I think that this is an amazingly fascinating aspect to whether or not the season continues and what happens as you mentioned, and I thought the way you put it was great in the other way, there seems to be like an endless amount of scenarios when you come up with one idea, all the different things it impacts. Well, one of the things being impacted with this pause were teams, and we had a lot of teams that fired coaches this past season or let them go, teams have interim coaches. How is Bill Guerin in the Minnesota Wild dealing with the interim coach tag in an aspect where whether or not they decide to, to stay with the current guy or make a change, that process? Yeah, I think that's the big uh, million-dollar question here in Minnesota right now. Is you know, Bill Guerin has told me umpteen times, even as recently as this week, is that he has not started any sort of coaching search right now. He thinks it'd be completely unfair to Dean Evason right now. In his mind, this season is going to continue, and Dean will be the coach, and then he'll decide after that uh, where he goes with the coaching search. And Dean has elevated himself into being a top candidate for this team. He only coached 12 games with the Wild. He was 8-4 and four with the team, but the team started to play really, really well. Um, one guy that extru- that really broke out with Dean is is uh, Kevin Fiala, and I think that relationship that he has, a longstanding relationship back to their days in Milwaukee when Dean was the Nashville Predators AHL coach, I think that has put him in a position that he could t- t- be a, a definite candidate to take over this team. So right now, I mean, he, it's one of many scenarios with the Wild that a lot of teams are dealing with. You know, Devin Dubnik's another guy. Um, the Wild don't know what they're going to do with their number one goaltending situation if they go and acquire one, if Capital Kakinen, their minor league goalie, is ready, if um, if he if Bill Guerin feels that Kakinen is the goalie of the future, but he's not going to be, you know, in his mind, he's not ready for a year or two down the road. How do you go get a free agent to sign a short-term deal here to maybe buy time? Um, there's just so many scenarios. You know, one thing I was just thinking about when you were talking about the endless challenges that I think Joe would be able to relate to too is that let's just say that they do return this season and next season is pushed back to December. And the AHL doesn't play games because um, you, it is a gate-driven league. And if you can't have fans in the building right away, are you going to be able to have fans what happens to all those players? What if you have top prospects there right. that are just on a so-called taxi squad and not developing playing games? You know, and that could affect a player like Devin Dubnik, who maybe has a year left on his deal, but if Capo Kakinen has nowhere to play this year, you almost have to put him on your roster and not just being on a taxi squad. So that is another laundry list of, of amazing challenges that these GMs are going to have to deal with that could also potentially affect the long-term development of a lot of top prospects in the minor leagues. Well, my, uh, Michael, that's a great point. I mean, I haven't even thought about that. The only aspect of the American League I really consider was if they push the season back to summer and they take one month off in October, for example, and they pick the season right back up, I'm thinking from an injury basis the, from the NHL club, you're going to be needing some serious depth if you're looking at months yep. and months on end of teams continuing playing. And where is that depth coming from? Like you said, if, if the American Hockey League 
uh, looks a little different. I, I want to just ask you one quick question since Curve was talking about Billy Garen and coaching. Is there any traction behind the rumor that, I mean, Lisa, have you heard about Billy Garen bringing the former blue Dougie Waite? Yeah, um, not as coach. Um, the one thing I've, now I now, look, I, I will probably to, to couch this just to cover my own butt, I'll probably include Doug Wade into a list of candidates. But the one thing that I've gotten the impression from Billy is that he does not want to put his best friend behind the bench. And so I just think that if Doug Wade works in this organization in any capacity, it would be more from a right-hand man standpoint in management um, and upstairs working with Billy from that standpoint rather than behind the bench. Um, and just one other thing, not to flip back to your subject, but you, you, know, you mentioned injuries, Joe. Another one is COVID-19. Like, we can't expect that just because they return now or they're going to return in the, in, you know, the, the winter time that COVID-19 is going to disappear off this planet. So, you know, frankly, sure. you can't just every time. I mean, there are going to be players that 100% test positive at some point for COVID. Uh, and the question is, do you stop all of sports in the NHL again, or do you just continue playing like it's a normal flu bug and pull that guy right out of the locker room and say, all right, you're, you're gone for two weeks. And if that's the case, you need a really quality, deep taxi squad, essentially, um, there. So not only injuries from these guys playing essentially two years con- continually, um, uh, but but the fact that guys are going to get sick uh, mo- most out, uh, you know, most undoubtedly. Well, I would think. Look, let's go real simple, basic. What happens if you decide to play and you get to the Stanley Cup final and yeah. five members of the mm. one of the final team ends up getting testing positive? That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, in yeah, it is going to be crazy. I mean, that yeah. to me is what is so fascinating about this whole thing is that there just there does come a point that you just got to live life, and you can't just you know if somebody tests positive in a if, especially if there's going to be another outbreak like everybody's saying or a second wave so called you can't just all of a sudden shut everything down again. So you're going to need a list of players that are eventually right there, and so I could very well see the NHL expand the rosters to say 30 and have sort of a taxi squad next year. But, you know, then, you, you know, that's how, how fair is that to top AHL players who, you know, might rather play in Europe if they could play rather than just being practice players all year long. It, it's just, you know, this is one thing that nobody's really talking about right now that at some point is going to have to become a huge issue in the league. But right now, obviously, they're putting, uh, you know, it seems like they're more motivated to get back playing here than deal with uh, issues that might arise back, in, you know, later in November and December. Michael's. By the way, another thing that just popped yeah. my head, not to just continue just talking off the top of your head, but but uh, the Winter Classic. I mean, the St. Louis yep. mm-hmm. Minnesota Wild are in the Winter Classic. Yeah. And if you're going to start the season December 5th, are you going to have a Winter Classic three weeks later? I think uh, you, you know, are. I, and, I think you yeah, do. But I mean, yeah, I, I think yeah. if, if you can have fans in there, I think you do. I, yeah, why change it? And that's the thing. Is, is like, you know, what the league is going to have to figure out in concert with the Minnesota Wild is how's the game selling? I mean, this I cannot imagine this is an easy sell right now. In the Minnesota Wild, I mean, and plus, you know, the, a big intrigue with the Winter Classic is you want fans traveling, and so you got to make sure that St. Louis Blues fans are willing to come to the Twin Cities, stay in hotels, and feel comfortable doing that. Uh, you know, come New Year's Eve time, and and so that's another thing that it just wouldn't shock me at some point if we hear that that, um, you know, I don't think it would come for a long time, but that could potentially be pushed back as well. All right, straight straight up hockey question. The last thing for you here, Michael, is we're joined by Michael Russo of the Athletic, covering the Minnesota Wild. Uh, with the way Kevin Fiala had really started to kind of turn his season around and started to produce, uh, any any looking back on some of those Paul Fenton moves that I think were justifiably questionable uh, in, in terms of how they're looking now versus even, uh, say, a month into this past season? 
Well, it's funny. Even before Paul, Fen- before Kevin Fiala broke out in, in early to mid February, I wrote a story, and the lead of my story was Paul Fenton. You got to hand it to Paul Fenton. Paul Fenton was right. Um, you know, it, there's no doubt that that one is looks like it's going to be a home run. You know, just from a from a potential standpoint, I mean, this is a young 23 year old as opposed to uh, Mikhail Granlin, who could con- conceivably become an unrestricted free agent this offseason. But you know, Fiala uh, turned into the game breaker that Paul Fenton said that he was, and I will say. You know, even at the time, though, I had said that Paul Fenton knew Kevin Fiala more intimately than anybody in Minnesota did. So we had to give him um, the benefit of the doubt. I think the big thing, the big thing was is that you were trading a you know known quantity for an unknown quantity. I think that just a lot of people felt like he didn't open him up to the league or get more assets for him. But regardless, I mean, Kevin Fiala looks like he has a long, long future in the NHL and definitely with the Minnesota Wild. So, um, look uh, – I hate to say it like this because I don't want to be a jerk, but Paul Fenton was not fired really for his hockey decisions. If he was fired for his hockey decisions, he would have been fired right after last season. He was fired in late July more because it was a personality issue between Paul Fenton and the rest of the organization and the morale that was inside the organization and really the type of you know managerial style that he had. Um, so that was really the reason why he was let go. And But in, a, in, in hindsight, there's no doubt a lot of his, aunt, his hockey moves have seemed to have uh, suddenly have got, gotten the second wind here and have seemed to have worked out. And it's uh, another proof positive by why a lot of us shouldn't judge trades and free agent moves at the moment it happens. you got to give things time. And right now it looks like the Wild um, have a great, great player in the future with Kevin Fiala. Michael, great catching up with you. Thanks for giving us some time tonight. We appreciate it and uh, look forward to hopefully before too long seeing you at a hockey rink. Yep, definitely. Anytime, guys. That is Michael Russo joining us here on This Weekend Hockey. One more segment to go. Hey, when you're talking legacies, it's not just how you remember them. Facts matter, and we'll explain in a moment on This Weekend Hockey on 101 ESPN. And one final time, we bring you back into This Weekend Hockey. Again, we come your way every Tuesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. Chris Kerber, Joe Vitale, Alex Ferrario, glad to have you with us. Fellas, earlier in the show, we we replayed and we played part of uh, our conversation that fans will hear in its entirety tomorrow night on Behind the Bench uh, with Larry Plo. And, and a couple of things that, that we went into was everything from the Chris Pronger trade to uh, almost getting Dominic Hoshik. Of course, he acquired Michael Hanzus and Lubos Bartesco. Larry, Larry um, uh, Pavel Dimitra came to the Blues a couple months before Larry Plo did to join the cycling Slovakians. And I, I think... It, it, one of the questions right towards the end of the interview, and again, for fans who want to hear the entire interview with Larry Plo talking about those specific things, especially Hoshik and Pronger, tune in tomorrow night from 6 to 7 p.m. on our Boardwalk Hardwood Floors Behind the Bench show. But one of the things after towards the end of the interview with Larry, end up, we end up talking about legacy. And in, in this case, it, it focused on Bill Laurie's ownership of the St. Louis Blues. And, uh, and, and in my opinion... You have to, when you look at somebody's legacy, you have to look at it all. So part of what really should be a very positive and good ownership of the St. Louis Blues for Bill and Nancy Laurie, you do have to include the negative of you traded Chris Pronger and that by pretty much coming out of the lockout, the, the, the team had gone right back to the bottom as you went to sell the team. So it's so it's all part of the legacy. But having said that, you know, it, it was still a very good legacy. Well, I kind of look at a couple of things here that I then go into the Dave Checkett's legacy and look, they left the team kind of in, in a not very, in a bad place in terms of, uh, in, in terms of financially, 
But it was under them that really the core of this franchise really started to turn. And they changed it, you know, with whether it was with what John Davidson did and how they kind of brought in. So I guess, you know, the the, the moves that were made of, of, you know, some of the draft picks and then the signings, of course, uh, the, the Tarasenko, the Schwartz, are all part of this legacy. Joe, when you look at legacies, you've got to include the good and the bad. And even though part of you might want to remember more of the bad or more of the good, it kind of all encompasses – either in ownerships, the general managers, the coaches, whomever, when you talk legacy, it has to encompass it all. It does, Curbs. And listen, growing up here in St. Louis, I was born in 1985. I, I didn't really have any strong blues memories until probably around 1995 when I was about 10, where I really took on the sport heavily. You know, I think Larry Plow took over late 90s, probably around 1997 yeah, or so, somewhere around there, 97. Um, I think nothing but great things about Larry Plow simply because every single April – the Blues were pretty much in the playoffs, I think, except for his last two years. I mean, he was a general manager here for 13 years. He's only missed the playoffs, I think, the last two years of his tenure uh, leading up until around 2007 there, or 2010, excuse me. So you, you look at that, uh, you give fans, yes, you don't win any cups. Yes, you don't get that pinnacle trophy. Sometimes it's very difficult to win, as we've seen. But he gave, he continued to pump out playoff team after playoff team after playoff team, and not to mention – when you're doing that, Curbs, as you know, we've talked about it a lot. When you're constantly making the playoffs and being bounced, talk about draft picks. You don't have any good draft picks, and it's really hard to continue to, at that level of excellence when you don't, you know, you don't drop so low. I mean, you look at the Edmonton Oilers. You look at you look at teams that have to be so bad. The Colorado Avalanche. They get some draft picks. They invest in them, and five, six years later, then they potentially have a dynasty. Uh, the Blues never really had that option under Larry Plo because they kept putting out very, very good teams. To me, some great memories in there with playoff hockey. Of course, not winning the ultimate goal, but uh, great memories nonetheless. Do you know that when, when the Blues missed the playoffs coming out of the lockout, so the lockout was 04-05, when they missed the playoffs in 05-06, that was only the fifth time in franchise history they had missed the playoffs? That's incredible. It's insane. Like, it's that, insane. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. Like, like, and there, there are people that and, – and I remember when you went through that, the – narrative from the fans that really thought that they knew what they were talking about, right? Was, ah, it's been, you know, remember, that was a stretch of 25 straight years right. of making the playoffs. It ended, right? Well, it was 25 years of mediocrity. Well, it was amazing then how unmediocre so many teams were because a lot of those other teams weren't winning Stanley Cups too to do it. And and it was really like just just to be able to to get there. And, and, and I'm telling you what, like, it, it, it's an interesting, you know, part of it. You know, the, the Solomons have such a, a positive legacy, you know, with this franchise. Um, you know, uh, under Mr. Shanahan, it was, you know, very different under Harry Ornest and, and how things go. And it was just, it was interesting talking to Larry and then kind of thinking about the different ownership groups and then both the positives and or the negatives that are all encompassed into the legacy of those different groups. People may say medi mediocrity when you look back on, on those 25 straight years, but no Stanley Cup. But I've talked to numerous players that played on those teams, and they all have said if they didn't have to go up against Detroit, or Colorado, two super teams when it comes to in their own division, you might be talking about a team that would be in the Stanley Cup final consistently, and then are you talking about mediocrity? Maybe they don't win the Stanley Cup, but if you have four or five finals appearances in those 25 straight years, I think you're talking about a little different scenario. But on top of that, when you talk Larry Plo, and maybe this is just me kind of going out of the universe with this, but part of me thinks Larry Plo and what he did with the Blues is a little similar to what Walt Jockety did with the Cardinals. It wasn't 
he was drafting, but it wasn't so much in terms of prospects and growing from the minors. It was making trades, signing free agents, and building the team that they had together because they knew they had a core group. There's two similar areas. So when Mark Sauer was brought in, one of these days we'll, we'll, we'll get Mark on just to hopefully talk openly about this. You know, Mark Sauer was brought in to kind of write the the business side of it, basically, and, and, and a big thing to cut costs. You know, when when Tom Stillman's group took over, they had to they had to somehow write the ship financially as well. There was some long term contract signed that that had to be addressed. Things along those kind of lines, uh, and I'm not just talking players; I'm talking vendors, things like that. Um, and and so it takes a while to do what they did. You know, an, another aspect of it, and and look, Larry himself. In, in the interview we're going to play tomorrow night, Larry himself talks very openly about the Chris Pronger trade and the return he got for it. And I think fans are, are, are going to really kind of uh, enjoy him because, I, I, honestly, I, I don't remember Larry speaking much about that, you know, over the years. And, and he was a very good company man along those lines, too. And he just he, – he, he took basically the heat for it. But it was a directive that came from up above. You know, and again, that, that goes back to the legacy. I always said, you know, at the time – you know, okay, so you want to sell the team. Well, you want to sell your house. You're going to tear out your kitchen first, and then leave the kitchen bare. You know, and and I don't necessarily. So, they didn't get value for. It. But anyway, it was an interesting walk back through that decade because it wound up being the playoff successes weren't there. But at the time, prior to the Blues going to the to to the bottom uh, in 0506, they'd had the most successful regular season decade in franchise history until the current one that the Blues have just put together. You you can't look back on eras, on times, with a revisionist history, with, with with shaded glasses. If you're real open and honest about it all, there is some real positives and then some real challenging times. And we do talk about it with Larry Plow. And that, that interview is going to come tomorrow night between 6 and 8 p.m. Yeah, and if anything, in that era, it really implemented what St. Louis and hockey mean with Brett Hall era transitioning into Chris Pronger and Al McKennis and the success that the Blues kind of put together. It's This Week in Hockey. Chris Kerber, Joe Vitale, Alex Ferrario with you. That is going to wrap things up for us tonight here, but make sure you stay tuned tomorrow night because we have the Boardwalk Hardwood floor behind the bench, as Chris Kerber mentioned. Larry Plow will be the guest for that hour. And then Thursday and Friday, it's Play Gloria, presented by Mitsubishi Electric Cooling and Heating and brought to you by McDonald's. It's Game 7 against the Dallas Stars, the double overtime winner on Thursday night. And then we start the San Jose Shark Series with Game number 2. So until then... I'm Alex Ferrario. Thank you for joining us on your home for the St. Louis Blues 101 ESPN.